Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I know some of you are surprised to hear us finally say Genesis chapter 2. We're working our way through the first six chapters this semester. We come now to the seventh day of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We see God's creation of a blessing. The Sabbath blessing. A blessing that we'll see God still intends for us. And we'll ponder that together. So far in Genesis, what have we seen? We've seen that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things visible and invisible. He's the maker of it all. He is the sovereign Lord of it all. There is nothing outside of this universe that he is not Lord of and in charge ultimately of. And the sixth day we spent a little time on highlights our place in his creation. Uh, The wonderful gift that he has made us his image bearers and placed us on the earth. We talked about what that means. To be the image of God is to be the idol of God. We don't make idols of God to worship God. God made his own idol. His own representation of himself upon the earth. You. Me. This is what humans are. We are made like God, made to represent God on the earth, and we are designed to imitate God. Tonight we see the pattern and rhythm of God's work and rest. And we see that it's for our blessing. And I want you to think about what God is like that you might be an imitator of him. Genesis chapter 2 then, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we ask that you would write this word on our hearts. We pray that you would teach us to know you as you truly are. We ask that you would lift Jesus before our eyes so that we would behold his glory. And we pray that you would do good to our souls, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1981, a movie came out that was almost unique in Hollywood in presenting principled evangelical Christianity in a positive light. It was a huge success, made, made tons of money, and it won the Oscar for Best Picture. It's called Chariots of Fire. Some in this room have undoubtedly seen it. It tells a true story, though, of course, it takes various you know, Hollywood embellishments uh, to get the movie on the screen and make a lot of money. But the hero of the movie and the story that's told is true. He was a Scottish seminarian student in seminary, and soon to be a China missionary, Eric Little. And he was a track star as well. 
in 1920s Britain, and he had an opportunity to compete and represent Britain in the 1924 Olympics in the 100-meter dash. But when he discovered at the last minute that his uh, qualifying heats were on Sunday, he withdrew from the event to the astonishment of his fellow competitors and friends. And he gained notoriety for his stand for the holiness of the Lord's Day and his unwillingness to compete in competitive athletics on it, according to his own convictions. A stand that seemed still more heroic when uh, he got to compete in the 400 meter, not his uh, best um, race, and he won the gold medal anyway for Britain after all. Well, the the studio that marketed the movie marketed it to Christians, and Christians flocked to see it because of its sympathetic and heroic portrayal of of one of its own, right? For its celebration as well of a Christian standing for their convictions and upholding what they believe to be the law of God. The irony, of course, is this. Missed by Christians who enjoy the movie is that they themselves would not do as little did, nor would they counsel probably anyone else to do as he did. But Eric Little, what was he doing? He was imitating God. And we should see that and see what a blessing it is. And I want you to consider that from Genesis chapter 2. How does God work? And how does God rest? And how is that good for you? Verse 1, how does he work? Verse 2, how does he rest? Verse 3, how is what he does good for you? That's what we want to consider tonight, the first place. How does he work? Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. What's it telling you? It's telling you this, friends, that what God begins, God completes. God proclaims the completion of all his work. And and that phrase, and all its hosts, reminds you that that what did God do in creation? God, God formed it and God filled it. God took what was formless and he gave it organization and structure. God took what was empty and he filled it, teeming with life, plants, animals, and people. Now it says it was finished. It and all its hosts. It's done. We've gone from the beginning of creation to the completion of creation in one chapter in the book of Genesis. God never fails to get the job done. I realize I said one chapter. That's because chapter 2 in the book of Genesis ought to begin at verse 4 with the chapter heading. And we'll see that next week. This rightly belongs to the creation week described in chapter 1. God never fails to get the job done. You've got to see that. And that this idea of God finishing things, is, is, the word is picked up in the Bible in a variety of other very significant places. And it's helpful to understand it and to see it with regard to other important works uh, that took place in the Old Testament. One is uh, at, the, at the completion of the tabernacle. You remember in the book of Exodus how the last like third or more of that book 
just takes you through all the structural details of how to build the tent of God that's supposed to travel with Israel and how to fill it with all its stuff and what all that is for. Well, you get to the end of it in Exodus chapter 40, verse 33, and we read this. And then he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. There's that word finished. The tent God intended his pilgrim people to meet with him in, it was finished. So likewise, this word shows up with regard to the more permanent temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Again, finished at these monumentally important historic milestones in the life of the people of God. The temple and the tent. Well, so likewise, friends, what you have going on here in Genesis 1 is God's own doing, where he creates the world, as it were, as his tabernacle, which he fills, in which he will meet with humanity, as he does in the Garden of Eden, walking with Adam and Eve in relationship. And God built the world as his dwelling place, so to speak, the heavens and the earth. And he finished that work. Finishing things is important. It's a God-like thing to do. Perhaps you know the stress associated with unfinished activity. I have a psychologist friend who tells me, nobody in this room, tells me that when people get a bit crazy, my word probably, and they need institutional care, sometimes one of the first things they do is they give them little easy craft projects to do, the kind you might do in early elementary school. Why? Because those somewhat mindless activities can be started and completed without difficulty. And that's therapeutic. Some who need this kind of care need it because life is so full of unending things, it simply wears them out. I think many of us stress out because of our work or how we work. Think of it, we procrastinate. We don't start things and we don't finish things and we stress out. Or we can't stop thinking about our work, on the other hand. We're maybe perfectionists, and we won't take a break and let it go. We're workaholics, and we find our identity in our productivity. Or we're so connected to email and cell phones and devices we carry around that connect us to the entire world that we can't walk away from our work or clients or boss, not even for a day. Or we have a Messiah complex about our work, and we think we have to be on top of everything all the time, or else everything's going to fall apart, because, you know, everything's really up to us. Or we think if we don't work all the time, we'll become poor, because really there's no one looking out for me except me. Now, these are all ways that we think and work and wear ourselves out. 
And we do that because we're fallen and we're not like our creator. But God isn't stressed out at all. And God completes what he begins. And he doesn't leave unfinished anything that concerns his glory or anything that concerns your full and everlasting blessedness, friends. He's looking out for you. What, what's true of God in creation is, tr- is true also in redemption. What he begins, he completes. If you look at John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus is hanging upon the cross, we read that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What's that saying, friends? Those words are packed with significance. Christ finished what was necessary to buy us back and what was necessary to open the door and the way into fellowship with God. He did it. It's done. It's like the word itself is, that's used, it's, it's like a bill which has been paid in full. It has been marked off and will, be, will not be charged to our account. He has finished it. He has paid the debt. It is done. So no wonder the writer in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, says this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What's he talking about? He's talking about a rest from our works, which believers begin to enjoy now, as we rest in the finished work of Christ. What he did, not what we do, puts us right with God. What he did, not what we do, makes us acceptable to God. What he did, not what we do, is is how we get pardoned from God. And a believer can rest in Jesus and rest from their works. And so likewise, it's also a a picture of and a foretaste of and a promise of the everlasting rest that we will enjoy forever in the presence of the Lord when we experience the fullness of redemption in all its glory. All of this is yours because God does what he says he will do and he finishes that which he starts. Turn with me to Revelation 21. This shows up again at the end of the Bible. Themes right out of Genesis 1. Revelation 21, verses 5 and 6. Let's pick up the reading at verse 1 just for the sake of context. He's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. Just as Genesis 1-1 talks about the first heaven and first earth. Then I saw, verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he, was, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. John sees the vision of the new heavens and the new earth and all its glory. And he is told it is done. It's accomplished. It's finished. That's how certain it is, friends. Because God does what he says he will do and God finishes what he starts. This is the place for you to build your assurance of salvation. This is where you gain confidence in Christ. Friends, as as you wrestle with you, as you, as you, if you're a Christian, you've begun to hate your own heart. You see things in you that you despise, that you long to be done with. You want to be like Jesus, but you're not. And, and you wrestle with you. You fight with you. You're disappointed with you. You don't like you anymore. You like Jesus and you wish you could be like him. I get it. It's hard. We're on a pilgrimage. But listen, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And you can bank on that, friends, because God finishes what he begins. And he began a good work in you. Oh, this is the place that we need to build our our confidence and our assurance. God does in creation and in redemption what he says he will do. And God gets it done. And so that's the first thing I want you to see. The second is this. How how does God, if that's how God works, how does God rest? Verse 2. When God finished, it says, he, he rested on the seventh day. Verse 2, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, what's that talking about? Now, perhaps it's obvious to you that the creator of all things who simply speaks universes into existence, who is all-powerful, doesn't lose energy or power even when he puts it to work in the universe. He's not a God who grows weary and exhausted. And the rest spoken of here doesn't mean he needs to sleep. That's not what it's talking about in any way. The words that we translate rested here simply means not to do work. It's uh, translated from the Hebrew word Shabbat. It gives us our English English word Sabbath. And it simply means to cease or to stop or to stop working. God, in other words, rested from his creational labors because he he had finished the work of creation and he quit creating. That's what it means. He ceased to do it anymore. That does not mean that God has ceased to be active in the world. That does not mean that God has ceased to be involved in the world. He finished creational labors... But he didn't finish his work of providence, of, of governing, of providing for and preserving his creation. He always does that. There's a couple of passages in the New Testament that help you see that. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Jesus speaks of the Father in heaven. In John chapter 5, 
verses 15 through 17. Now he does it because the religious leaders of his day are picking on Jesus for the way that he lives out the Sabbath. Now they, can't, they can't stand what Jesus does on the Sabbath because they misunderstand what the Sabbath is for. So Jesus is going around doing works of ministry and mercy on the Sabbath, and they hate him for it. Here in John 5, he's just healed a man on the Sabbath day. And then at John chapter 5, verse 15, the religious leaders confront this man. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. What's Jesus saying? He's acknowledging that God is still active and always has been in this world. And God's Sabbath activity, though no longer creational, is a different kind of activity and work in this world. And of course, this, this whole very idea gave the religious leaders fits. Because for the Pharisees, their emphasis wasn't on what you do on the Sabbath. It was, it was almost wholly on what you quit doing on the Sabbath. And what you had to avoid doing on the Sabbath so you could avoid breaking the law. Just, just think about the whole mentality of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They didn't try to keep the Sabbath out of love for the law of God that commanded it. The, the essence of Phariseeism was not, oh, how I love your law, Lord, or, or Lord, how can I obey you and be like you? That wasn't what a Pharisee cared about. Their, their emphasis was, how can I avoid keeping the law? When do I not have to keep the law? When does the law not apply to me? And that, that whole attitude bred self-righteousness in them because they reduced the law to things that they could do and then they felt good about themselves when they did it and they blasted away at everybody else who didn't do it like they did. That, that was their attitude. They were brutal. And it's because they didn't see the grace of the Sabbath system. They didn't delight in God's day of rest. And they were trying to win favor with God by their works. They misunderstood grace. So what works must I do and not do to win God's favor? And they went to great extremes to try to obey their own man-made righteous requirements. And they had crazy Sabbath laws because of that. Not Sabbath laws that came out of the Old Testament, but things like this, for instance. For instance, the law of the Old Testament given to the Israelites in Exodus 16 said that a man was not to travel on the Sabbath day. The scribes then, di- then tried to, in an extra-biblical way, define what constitutes illegal travel. And they did it by establishing what they called a Sabbath day's journey, roughly a thousand yards. A man could walk, so they said, that far on the Sabbath. And if he walked any farther than that, then he was breaking the commandment. But, they said, if you tie a rope at the end of your street then your neighborhood becomes your home and you can go a thousand yards from the end of your street. And they said, listen, if you have a long journey ahead of you and you need to take it on the Sabbath day, if you go out a thousand yards the day before and and set a packet of food out, then you can go out to that packet of food and, and really you've established a kind of temporary residence 
and you can eat your meal, and so you haven't really gone a, a, a Sabbath day's travel journey that breaks God's law. So you can go another thousand yards, and conceivably, at least theoretically, you could put uh, food packets after food packet every thousand yards, and you could walk your way across Israel on the, on the Sabbath day. You, you see what they were doing. They were not, they weren't trying to obey the law. They were figuring out how can I get around it and still feel personally righteous by my own works. And so it bred this kind of self-righteousness and they beat everybody else up who didn't do it the way they did it. They had all these man-made rules and that was their attitude. And what we see Jesus do, doing is exploding that. And one of the places you see that is in Mark chapter 2. Again, on the Sabbath day, if you want to turn to Mark, 20, Mark 2, 23 through 28, briefly, you see, again, Jesus on the Sabbath day, and we won't take the time to read it, but you can look at it. He's, he's walking with his disciples in the grain fields. He's spending some time with his disciples. They're walking, undoubtedly talking and sharing life together. And some of the disciples casually reach down, pick a few heads of grain, rub them between their hands to loosen the holes from the kernels. They blow away the the chaff and they pop the kernels in their mouth to eat. And the Pharisees see it and they go to Jesus with the complaint that his disciples are breaking the law. Because in their view, picking the grain is harvesting and removing the husk is threshing. And removing the chaff is winnowing, and chewing the kernels is grinding. And so they accuse the disciples of doing farm labor, as well as uh, illegal food preparation, on the Sabbath day. But Christ's response to them, and to their accusation, upholds the Sabbath while demolishing their legalism. He says to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't get rid of the Sabbath, but he doesn't embrace the legalistic, pharisaical misinterpretation of the Sabbath either. On the Sabbath, he healed people. On the Sabbath, he walked with his disciples. He engaged in in worship and mercy and ministry. It just wasn't the kind of activity that the religious leaders thought was proper. And what's God doing in all of this? He's setting a pattern of life for you and I. And I want you to see that. That pattern isn't work really hard six days, sleep in, nap all day and vegetate in front of the TV on the seventh day. That's not the pattern. The pattern pattern is one kind of activity on six days and another kind of activity on the seventh. It is a day for rest for the body and the mind from our normal occupations and the exhaustion we experience, to be sure. Of course it's that. But it's also a day for nurturing spiritual life and for works of ministry and mercy. Calvin says it this way, Inasmuch as God sustains the world by his power, governs it by his providence, 
cherishes and even propagates all creatures. He is constantly at work. And so that's the kind of rest God has. And he sets a pattern for us in life. And we want to see that then. How, how is this good for us? How is this pattern for our benefit? I want you to consider that. Notice back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day and God made it holy. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There's this pattern of life, six days of labor, one day of rest. And God did that for you, for your benefit. The Sabbath, Jesus says, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it was made for your benefit. You weren't made to be a slave to it under its burden. It was actually designed to be a blessing for you. God blessed it for you. Notice, by the way, he doesn't say that the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't say that the Sabbath was made for Israelites. He says it was made for man right from the very, very beginning before Israel even exists. This is for humanity as a whole. Now, why did God do it this way? God didn't rest because he needed sleep. But he created in six days and then ceased creating because he knew as finite creatures with limited physical and mental and emotional strength, we needed a one-day break from our regular studies and labors. As the fourth commandment puts it, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days do all your work and rest on the seventh day. Because why? God made the world in six days. And God rested on the seventh day. And all cultures everywhere have a seven-day weekly pattern. It's kind of ingrained in us, friends. It's natural. Even your uh, dearest non-Christian friends, unless they are a workaholic killing themselves by working every day of the week, they're probably working a pattern of six and taking at least one, if not more than one, off. It's just innate in us. It's ingrained in us. It's part of the warp and woof. Of, of living in this universe, that we need this. There have been attempts in history to break the weekly pattern. In, at the time of the French Revolution, out of, on the one hand, their love of the metric system, and so you do things in tens, and also in their effort to undermine Christianity, very pointedly, the French got rid of the seven-day week, and the six-day, one-day pattern, and they instituted a ten-day labor week, And it it wore people out, and they actually had to go back to the normal pattern. They couldn't take it. That's because, as B.B. Warfield says, the Sabbath is an oasis in the midst of earthly cares. This would have come as good news, friends, to the ancient Israelite who first heard it, having been enslaved in Egypt for generations and worked to the bone by their cruel taskmasters seven days a week, morning and night. They come out, and God brings them out and delivers them and walks them into freedom, and he makes them his own people, and he reiterates the Sabbath pattern. And in the fourth commandment, he says to them, Now listen, friends, in my household, you get seven and a half weeks of vacation every year. You take one day off every week because nobody in my household is a slave to a burden. 
And I am not a cruel taskmaster. I came to give you freedom and to bless you. And so the Sabbath would have come as a, a great blessing to them. Mandatory vacation from their regular work. And so God is looking out for us, friends, to bless us. Ah, but you say, what day are you talking about? You talking about the seventh day of the Old Testament and Saturday? Or are you talking about the first day of the New Testament and Sunday? Or what should we make of all that? And and briefly, I want to say this, that the New Testament has changed the day from the last to the first. And in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 1, you see the Apostle John call it the Lord's Day. Now, why do we celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday, not Saturday? We do so very briefly because it's the day our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. He rose on Sunday. He appeared in John chapter 20, verse 19. He appeared to his disciples on Sunday, not the seventh Sabbath Saturday. And a week later, again on Sunday, he appeared to his disciples. And it was on that day that he proclaimed freedom by his death and resurrection, for his previously enslaved people, people enslaved to sin, death, and hell. And he proclaimed liberty to captives and the inauguration of a new creation. And we celebrated on the first day. It was on the first day that the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. It was on the first day in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that the people of God gathered to break bread, partake of the Lord's Supper, and hear the Apostle Paul teach. It was on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that the Apostle Paul said, when you come together, pull your money aside and pool it as resources to give. It's on the first day of the week that you see a New Testament pattern of the church gathering together to worship God Sunday by Sunday. That's why the, the day has changed, following the apostolic pattern. And so God blessed the day, and Genesis chapter 2 says, and he sanctified it. He set it apart. He set it apart for a holy use. That's the meaning. As Jesus himself affirmed, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have authority over it to explain its purpose and command its use. I'm in charge of the day. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so that day is still set apart. But we, of course, so easily mess it up. We have strange and pharisaical ideas about what Sunday is for. People throughout Christianity, throughout history, always have had uh, mixed up ideas. We all have a jumble of ideas. Some are true and some aren't. Whether, as Robert Rayburn puts it, by the way, he just went on to be with the Lord. Whether... Uh, Robert Raymond, Raymond puts it this way, whether it is Laura Ingalls Wilder sitting stiff and silent in a straight back chair through a long and boring Sunday afternoon on the prairie, some of you saw that episode, or a New England ship captain getting into trouble for kissing his wife on the doorstep when he returned home on Sunday after a long journey and being thrown in jail for the kiss because of Sabbath laws against it. Uh, He says, hosts of people have supposed through the years that by calling the day holy, the Lord set his people a terrible burden to bear. But then he says, look instead at the example of our Lord Jesus, our Savior, the only man who ever perfectly kept the Sabbath law. What did Jesus do? 
He ate with friends. He even went to feasts on that day. He gathered with his disciples and he walked with them in the fields. He enjoyed their companionship and company. And he taught on the Lord's day. And he went and worshipped with the people of God. That was his practice. Nothing there at all about sitting straight in straight back chairs through a long, boring Sunday afternoon and nothing there about not kissing your wife either. In our culture, friends, the loss of the Lord's Day as a cultural practice came about most evidently in the 1960s. It was in the 1960s uh, and the 70s when our, our, culturally we abandoned the idea of a day set apart for the Lord. Methodist evangelist Johnny Mercer wrote a book called Golf Pro for God. In the seventh chapter called The Sunday Question, he just gives gives this relentless critique of the abandonment of Sunday as a day of worship and rest and deeds of necessity and mercy. And he leveled his sights at the PGA. You know why? Because it was in the 1960s that the PGA realized that they could hold their championship uh, events on Sunday instead of Saturday because on Sunday there was nothing else going on and they could capture the attention of millions and gain greater commercial sponsorships for the PGA. And so they moved the championships from Saturday to Sunday to make more money out of greed. We need in our own day a recovery of the Lord's day, a day for believers to rest, to worship, to gather in fellowship with the people of God, to engage in spiritual activities of ministry and mercy, to be blessed and be a blessing to others, a day set apart. And we, dear friends, we ought to protect and promote Sunday. Not only for ourselves, but for our sons and our daughters and for those we employ, anyone really that we have responsibility for. But friends, this passage is designed to build our confidence in the God who completes what he begins so that in him you can find rest for your souls. The God that stops creating but never stops governing and blessing in whom you can trust. And on this day, he blesses his people with time to be with him. You know what it's like when you fall in love, when you get married? You go on dates. You carve out time. You make special time to be together. Why do you do that? Because you're interested in the person, you want to know them and be known by them because you want to build and shape love in your relationship with them. And so the Lord says to you, one day a week, I want to be with you. Come be with me. It's a day for your soul to meet with Jesus, the bridegroom, and to delight in knowing him and being known by him and blessed by him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you order and organize our time. Thank you that you call us to follow you, to walk in the way that you have lived on this earth. And we pray that the Sabbath would truly be a a day of delight. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.